Hi, everyone. This is NBC10 Boston's question and answer series on the war in Ukraine. Please continue sending your questions to ukrainequestions at nbcuni.com. I'm digital reporter Mary Marcos, and I'm here with Maya Cross and Pablo Calderon of Northeastern University and Oleh Katsuba of Harvard University. Thank you guys for joining us every week. Thank you. So there's been a lot of talk about the, a second phase of the war, entering a second phase and a new phase. And Russia is, as we know, shifting its focus to the eastern part of Ukraine, where uh, Russian allied separatists and Ukrainians have been fighting for the past eight years. Russia also appointed a new central war commander on the ground. And a, uh, he's, a, he's a general with a record of targeting civilians. And just yesterday, Putin vowed to continue with the invasion until he uh, achieves his goals, which he outlined as gaining control of the of that eastern region, which some people refer to as the Donbass. So I just wanted to start with um, asking you guys why the next few weeks of the war are, are so pivotal at this point. Oleh, would you start? Yes, absolutely. Um, I think the, the question here again is what the real goal is and whether or not there is an end game to this uh, for Putin. Um, several analysts have argued that there is, in fact, no end game for this, and Putin could, could continue this indefinitely. And if he takes Ukraine, he will move on to the next target, simply because of the internal dynamics within the power pyramid that he has constructed in Russia, where he has to uh, constantly prove himself as the most uh, vicious, the strongest, the most, uh, you know, to be feared leader of the country. And if he doesn't, then he will be likely removed either by the elites or uh, you know his popularity is going to fall within the Russian population and so the uh, so taking taking control of the eastern parts of Ukraine uh, so as you may know uh, you know certain regions of the Donbass of the Donbass area right consisting of two uh, oblasts in Ukraine the Luhansk and the Donetsk oblasts those certain regions are the self-proclaimed republics of the Luhansk people republics and the uh, Donetsk People's Republic. And um, so those have been already under effective control of Russia. People there have been bombarded with uh, propaganda for the last eight years coming directly from Russia. They have been consuming the same media, the same you know, news streams as the people in Russia. And so, of course, for Putin, it's a lot easier to declare that as his immediate goal because the victory, quote unquote, there would be probably a lot easier to achieve given that the fact that the local population has been already so massively uh, um, you know uh, bombarded with certain messages that are you know that penetrate also the russian informational space on the on top of that uh, the terrain is very different in eastern ukraine it's mostly uh, steppe areas with some mounds and hills but otherwise it's wide open it's not as uh, you know deeply uh, uh, permeated by rivers or by forests and so on. So that allows for the use of heavy armored vehicles uh, in that terrain. Uh, you know, and Russia has you know kind of the uh, the coefficient of ten or hundred, uh, you know, compared to Ukraine uh, in terms of the armored vehicles, uh, you know, uh, for the army. So. The kind of I think he's trying to set up himself for success in quotation marks again uh, in order to have something to celebrate on the uh, victory day what is called the victory day in Russia 
which is celebrated on May the 9th, as opposed to the rest of the world, which celebrates the victory over Nazi Germany on May the 8th. Um, and usually there has always been a big uh, military parade uh, uh, in the Red Square in, in Moscow, as well as in other cities. And I think that, you know, this is the strategic goal right now, or maybe tactical goal right now for Putin to not to kind of to be able to present something as a victory. Um, Ukrainians are bracing for it. Uh, many have, you know, left already those uh, cities and towns. Uh, I have colleagues who have evacuated from uh, those areas, uh, as well as friends. Uh, people are fearing what they have seen coming out of Bucha, Hostomel, and Irpin. They understand that this will be an absolute ruthless campaign. The, the, the Russians are going to give it all. And that's why the, uh, the current support from the West uh, in terms of heavy military equipment is so crucial. Ukraine needs those anti-aircraft uh, missile defense systems. Uh, Ukraine needs those fighter jets. Uh, Ukraine needs more armored vehicles, tanks, and whatever else the West can provide. Uh, Ukrainians have, Ukrainian army has proved to be very uh, successful at learning how to use this new equipment. And so the kind of the previous, I think, concerns about delivering weapons that are superior to Russians, but which Ukrainians haven't uh, been trained in using, I think are receding into the background. And uh, especially the US administration, but also other Western governments are now considering also delivering weapons that could be superior and could help Ukrainians to fight off that massive assault that, that Russia is preparing in the East. At the same time, we need to remember that the Russian army is uh, heavily demoralized. Uh, the uh, kind of the military command is using repressive tactics to force people into the battle. Uh, so that's at least what we hear from various intercepted communications and, and you know other sources on the ground. Uh, and so the effectiveness is yet to be proven. I think that's why the change in the leadership, uh, you know, for the new general, uh, it has to do with the fact that he is a ruthless commander who is going to force through a lot of this very difficult maneuvers that are, you know, that are, you know, expecting Russia uh, in eastern Ukraine. Great. Maya, Pablo, what do you guys think? Um, well, I think Ole laid out most of the main key issues here. Um, I would just sort of emphasize further, I suppose, that, you know, now that there is this more limited nature of the war, at least in the short run, um, it's absolutely crucial for Putin to feel like he can win this um, because it's already quite obvious he couldn't do the larger takeover, at least so far, and, and kind of enter into Kiev and topple the government. So I think we're likely to see more brutality because he will feel like he has no choice but to clearly win this and to do it swiftly. At the same time, because it's more limited, there's the risk that, you know, the international alliances against Russia um, will somewhat lose interest, you know, in a way, I, I think they're still very much there and, and ramping up the sanctions, ramping up the military equipment and aid. Um, but as people turn to other issues, you know, there is the danger that a more limited war doesn't kind of spark as much attention and as much motivation to really focus on this. Um, this will be mitigated, of course, by the brutality of the measures that this new Russian general will um, take in, in, in the eastern Ukraine. Um, so as we start to get more and more information about the tactics being used and the potential for genocide, um, there's going to be a strong push, I think, 
to do more. Uh, so it's it's kind of this balancing act of it's more limited, so there's less attention, but it's probably more brut brutal. Um, so there has to be kind of more of a reaction to what, what Russia is doing. Great. Pablo? Yeah, I, I would agree with Oleg and Maya have said. And I think in general, again, I would also agree with Maya. We have to emphasize the fact that it's, it's all about what Vladimir Putin can sell as a win at home and what can portray as a win to, to his own population. Uh, and that is pretty much going to whatever he can sell as a win is going to have an impact on how brutal the war is going to be in eastern Ukraine and how brutal the war is going to be in eastern Ukraine and the new phase of the war. It's also going to have a direct impact on how interested the rest of the world is going to be in the conflict. So there is there is the potential for good news, but there's also the potential of very bad news. And, and I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later, but there's other events around Europe and around the world that are already taking the attention of, of domestic populations. There's, there's different scandals, different elections, different changes of government, different things that are happening at the domestic level that can already have an impact on the the... Uh, the togetherness that the West has shown in reacting to the uh, aggression against Ukraine. So I think this could be seen as good news, and it, it could be good news, but it could also be very bad news, and it could escalate very, very quickly, and it could lead, I'm afraid, to more violence targeted against civilians, uh, more indiscriminate killing, and what we've seen happening already, but on a greater scale, in, in a lower amount of territory. And I'm also fearful that if that happens, maybe the international community will start to lose attention particularly as well when the cost of living crisis starts to really bite across Europe. If the, if, if the conflict prolongs into the next winter and the cost of fuel remains high, the cost of, the, the cost of natural gas remains very high and it's very expensive to heat your own homes, these things are going to have a real impact for domestic politicians and domestic politics and people might start to lose a little bit of interest or if not interest, certainly the, the willingness to, uh, to maintain the engagement. So I think the next few weeks are very, very cru crucial. And I agree with Oleg that the West should maintain its support, should increase its support, and it should really try to do everything we can to ensure that Ukraine can can survive this. And that Vladimir Putin does not feel very important. Vladimir Putin doesn't feel emboldened to do this again somewhere else because he's already threatening. We saw what happened recently when Sweden and, and Finland are, are uh, is talking about joining NATO. Vladimir Putin was very, very clear that they would see this as, as aggression. And we've already seen what but Vladimir Putin does when he feels something has been some sort of aggression against Russia. So I think we have to be very careful here and we have to make sure that Vladimir Putin can see whatever he wants as an aggression, but that doesn't mean that gives him the right to do whatever he wants to. And I think the next few weeks are very important in that calculation. Yeah, actually, that's a... Oh, go ahead, Ola. I can just add a couple, a couple of things, or maybe just one thing. Uh, what is really, I think what is really worrying in all of this is that the kind of the... Um, more and more, the uh, political regime that Putin has built uh, assumes the, um, you know, the kind of all the characteristics of a totalitarian regime. And as as we know from the past, in a totalitarian regime, any resistance is perceived as a major threat to the to the power of whoever is a, you know, whoever is running the system. And so that was the same during the Stalin. Uh, era, right, which was kind of the height of the totalitarianism in the Soviet Union, and then it kind of dissipated. Uh, and we are seeing something similar emerge slowly in uh, within the uh, political regime of, of Vladimir Putin. And that, unfortunately, leaves very few exits for him out of the situation, because if everything is perceived as a threat, 
to him personally, to his power and so on, then he has to respond to everything, right? And so that's, I think that's a very dangerous development and we need to, uh, you know, closely observe what happens next. Right. I, I did want to get into a little bit about what other, how other countries uh, come into play here. And, and part of that it includes Finland and Sweden, which has been seriously considering joining NATO. And, and we know that part of this escalation, right, was because Ukraine was uh, trying to join NATO, at least in part. Um, and so I just, I wanted to ask you guys what the significance of that is now that uh, it, this is exactly what Putin didn't want, right? And now because of the of the escalation of the of the uh, attack of the invasion, now that now Finland and Sweden are seriously considering doing something that they that, that they hadn't really moved on before. Uh, Pablo, do you want to start with that? Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it's very very interesting, and and I, I spent a bit of time in Finland uh, about 10, 12 years ago. And um, there was really no interest whatsoever in, in joining NATO. Finland had a very comfortable position. It had a relatively friendly relationship with Russia, right? This is before, obviously, Vladimir Putin was considered the pariah that he is today. Uh, and he, they had a very comfortable relationship with Russia. Uh, there was relatively free movement of, of, of people at, at the border region, particularly in Finland as well. And Finland had really no interest in joining NATO or, or it was trying to rebuild a relationship with Russia after a very difficult history. And I think for, for Finland in particular to shift and to really try and to really move towards joining NATO is a very significant development that really speaks of the, um, the fear, really, that, that, that certain countries and Western countries are having of the reaction of Vladimir Putin. And I don't know if necessarily this is not something that Vladimir Putin calculated beforehand. And this is something as well that he can sell at home as part of the same rhetoric, as part of the same the same history that he's building about, you know, Russia being sort of encircled by enemies and Russia being standing against all this Western aggression. And it's very it's relatively easy for, for Putin today to sell anything that resembles Russian aggression as justifying his initial actions, right? Because at the end of the day, he can justify any defensive moves by any of the countries in the periphery as actually aggressive moves. And he can sell it to his own population as saying, these countries are joining NATO because they're aggressive against Russia and they want to attack Russia. So this justifies my initial fear against Ukraine. Uh, so I don't know if this is necessarily playing against what Vladimir Putin wanted to begin with. I think what Vladimir Putin wanted was to strengthen his own position within Russia, first and foremost. And if, if Finland and Sweden pursue NATO membership, it may help Vladimir Putin consolidate his power within Russia. But at the end of the day, I, I, it makes perfect sense for countries like Finland and Sweden to pursue uh, integration into, into NATO because we have seen, in fact, the price you pay for not joining NATO, right? And I think uh, it would have been relatively a lot easier, for example, for Russia to invade Estonia Right. But there's one reason why they didn't invade Estonia. And that is because obviously Estonia is a member of NATO and Ukraine isn't. So the deterrent is clear and it is clear to see that the deterrent of NATO works. So, um, yeah, it makes sense for Finland and Sweden to try to become members of NATO. But I also think this will play eventually into the rhetoric and the history of Vladimir Putin is trying to build as the West attacking Russia and Russia being surrounded by enemies and Russia needed to defend itself, which is obviously uh, uh, paradoxical in many ways. Great. Maya, Ola? Yeah, I mean, I think in a way, just to respond directly to Pablo, right? 
Putin can sell almost anything because he has this disinformation machine going on and he's cracked down on independent media entirely in Russia. So he could sell it as this justifies Russian aggression if Finland and Sweden join NATO. But if they don't join NATO, he can also sell it as Russian you know, incursion into Ukraine has worked because see, mm. now they're afraid to expand NATO. Um, so I think it, it can work both ways. But nonetheless, it is important for Finland and Sweden to take this stance. I think it is, it signals that, you know, remaining neutral in a situation like this with this shift in the, the nature of world order is not acceptable. And um, it is important to really draw a clear line and say that what Russia is doing is wrong. It, and this is important, not only internationally, but also domestically, because we know that in many democracies, I mean, this is just inherent in the nature of democracy, there are minority voices that are anti-democratic, that have authoritarian leanings and Russian sympathies, um, close ties to Putin. Uh, so these kinds of actions, joining you know, a military alliance that represents the West, really clearly sends a signal that you know this is on the side of of what is right and we stand against what russia is doing we want to uphold the liberal international order this weakens these sort of nefarious forces domestically and it weakens what um, autocracies are trying to do around the world hello yeah i don't have too much to add to this i think this is excellent analysis on in terms of what is going on and how that will impact I think one, perhaps only one consideration here is uh, that number one, we or maybe two actually, number one is that we are seeing the hardening of lines on both sides, right? So kind of this buffer zone that had, had existed there is basically disappearing. Belarus is now basically firmly Russia. You know, Ukraine is leaning towards the West and kind of is fighting for its independence. You know, then with Sweden and Finland joining, potentially joining NATO, right? And so on. So that buffer zone is disappearing. And the question is if there is a new Iron Curtain emerging, where is it going to go? And I think that we need to do everything possible that that curtain doesn't go through the middle of Ukraine, because that would be, you know, one of the strategic goals, I think, for, for Putin in particular to make that one, that kind of eastern part of Ukraine, uh, you know, a sort of kind of no no man's man no man's land or you know like a borderland that where there is no law there is no you know there is you know just kind of a gray zone that would be uh, a source of crime exporting crime exporting uh, weapons drugs uh, etc to uh western europe which you know we have precedents uh of before with the transnistrian republic the so-called transnistrian republic the unrecognized enclave in moldova where Russian troops are basically assuring its uh, so-called independence. Uh, so that's number one. Number two, of course, we are seeing the waning of the soft power as a concept and the, the rise again of the hard power. I think that you know uh, the fact that Sweden and Finland are recognizing that it's not enough to be associated with uh, the European Union in itself or have some kind of um, you know projects going on with the NATO as an alliance. Uh, you know, it's no longer, you know, effective for their own protection. And so hard power is becoming a lot more relevant uh, in, in these times of conflict. And so I think that also will have repercussions throughout the, uh, you know, other, other countries as well, who will uh, obviously, uh, you know, pay more attention to hard power rather than soft power. Right. 
Okay, and then the other um, sort of uh, question I had for you guys is about how the uh, French pre presidential election is significant to the war in Ukraine. Maya, can you tell us about that? Sure, yeah. I mean, I think it's incredibly significant. The, the next round is April 24th, so we don't have to wait long to find out the result. Um, the reason it's significant is that if Le Pen wins, then French leadership changes dramatically. And this is very, um, you know, crucial, especially after Brexit, because you don't have three countries sort of at the helm of the EU now. You have Germany and France. Germany has just um, radically changed its, its military stance. It's willing to be more militarized to fight threats like Russia. Um, and so if Macron gets reelected, we have this strong Franco-German engine behind the EU leading the EU in a way that promotes uh, cohesion and, and speaking with one voice. If Le Pen wins, then you have a leader who's highly Eurosceptic. I mean, it was just a few years ago she advocated for France to leave the EU. Right now she's advocating for France to leave NATO's military command structure. Uh, she has close ties to Putin. Um, she is still wanting to kind of bring France further and further away from Brussels. Uh, which means she, along with people who lead, you know, like Hungary, Orban and Poland's leader as well, they think their national law should take precedence over EU law. So they essentially want disintegration of the EU. So that would start to really break down the consensus that's that's holding right now with the EU and, and the common approach to Russia, the sanctions, the very, very difficult choices that had to be made through compromise to stand together and also with the US. Um, so I think it is a pivotal moment. I do still think chances are Macron will win. I think we've seen in the past, even though this is a tighter election, um, that when the French electorate are really at the precipice and looking at, do we want this far right xenophobic leader versus someone who is more mainstream, even if Macron isn't totally popular domestically at this point, um, they tend to to go with that candidate over this this sort of unknown extremist. So I'm hoping that will be the case, but it's incredibly close and it will have a huge impact on what happens in, in the coming months when it comes to foreign policy toward Russia. Great. Pablo, uh, Ola, either of you have anything to add? Yeah, I, I would just, I, was, I agree entirely with Maya and I would say the victory the potential for victory of, of, of Marine Le Pen is in and of itself problematic for, for many, many different reasons. The fact that she made it again to the final round is very, very problematic and it speaks of a general dissatisfaction in France and perhaps across Europe, but certainly in France, uh, with, with liberal democratic values and principles. And it's very, very problematic. And this really plays into the hands of Vladimir Putin and this coalition of autocrats that is emerging across the world and I agree with Maya. I think at the end of it, the 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 coalition across France that is against Marine Le Pen is going to be big enough to to uh, to block her path to power. But it doesn't mean that it is not significant in and of itself that about a third of the French electorate is still going to probably end up supporting a clearly pro-Russian, pro-Kremlin, xenophobic, far-right nationalist in France, and that in itself is very very problematic, and speaks a lot about the the challenge that. Russia and, and, and this sort of uh, anti-Western ideology is presenting at the more sort of ideological level, right? And, and I think it's playing, it's playing into domestic politics all across Europe. We saw that played out in the, in the Brexit referendum as well. 
we see it playing out, for example, now in, in domestic politics in the UK. There's also the potential now of, of a change of government within the UK because of different uh, rule breakings during lockdown from the prime minister. So we do see all these things taking a, taking a toll. Uh, and we do see all these things playing a part in, in the domestic debate about what is the best way to deal with Vladimir Putin. And we have seen since the invasion of Ukraine um, some sort of, uh, you know, these voices have become a little bit louder and a, a little bit justified. And I thought it was probably going to have a little bit of an impact in the Hungarian election, for example. And I thought Orban was going to struggle to justify his very pro-Kremlin stance, but that didn't really materialize. That didn't really happen. It didn't really cost him any votes or any power. So we are really seeing fractures within the European Union. Uh, and I think we're still at a, at a place where uh, Marine Le Pen is not going to make it to power. But the fact that she's close enough or, or this close is really, really problematic. And she really focus the attention of politicians across the political spectrum in Europe and, and make them realize that this is a serious threat to the liberal democratic principles of Europe and the liberal democratic coalition across the world. And it's just not about what's going on in Ukraine. That is not about what Vladimir Putin is trying to do in Ukraine, is the repercussions it has across the globe and particularly for Europe. Yeah, yeah I, I think I agree that um, I think the kind of the most important takeaway from all of this is that uh, this it's become this close uh, in, a, in a country that is a major center you know, on, of Western democracy. And of course, we know that there has always been nationalism in, in France, in Germany, in other countries, in Italy, is, as we know, and so on. And there have been, you know, populist leaders in the past. What is remarkable about this right now is that there is also a kind of a certain uh, joining of positions uh, uh, on Russia between the ultra right and the ultra left in in those countries. And so the kind of the xenophobia and etc. are kind of united here. In, in the embrace of Russia as, as a partner or as a model, perhaps for those for those powers, which in itself is very worrying because as we know, Putin in particular has been fomenting a lot of these sentiments in European countries, as well as here in the United States through various you know, campaigns of influence and, and um, you know, uh, you know, on social media and elsewhere for a long time. And so it seems to be bearing fruits now. And of course we need to, you know, watch very closely what happens. I cannot help but notice the uh, uh, similarities uh, between the current situation and the situation before World War II, where, you know, you also had, you know, certain leaders in Italy and Germany rise to power that were highly autocratic, you know, and then uh, leaders of democracies were trying to appease them, to pacify them somehow and so on. And so we see definitely something similar here and uh, we need to, again, we need to, you know, learn from history, repeat those, uh, those kind of learnings, those take takeaways, uh, and try to avoid that. Absolutely. Well, we are out of time, but it's been really wonderful to talk to you guys, as always, and get some important insights into what's going on uh, in Ukraine and, and in the rest of the world. Thank you guys so much, and I'll talk to you next Wednesday at 1030. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.